Hey, uh, how many people picked up the subtle uh, pastor joke that Russ made with the pick up your chairs? Wasn't that a great pastor joke? That was, oh man, that was fantastic. As cool as we try to be, sometimes uh, either, both Russ and I slip into like old school pastor joke guy, and uh, it happened this morning. Um, so uh, the story of Jonah, you guys all saw that video that we, uh, that we showed up here. I'm saying that we all have a, a pretty decent like working understanding of the story of Jonah, right? We've all kind of heard about that person's life. I think the video does a nice job of providing an overview. Uh, however, that's not really the story that I read when I read the book of Jonah. And if you've sat down in uh, the last couple of years and actually read the book of Jonah, it's similar, certainly. It's an overview, but that's not really the story that I get out of the book of Jonah. Russ and I, uh, as we preach over the next couple of weeks, uh, I believe three weeks, we're going to look at the life and the story of Jonah, and we are hoping to provide a raw and real look into the story and person of Jonah, one that might be a touch different than the video that we watched, perhaps a little bit different than how you have been taught the story of Jonah in the past, so don't be freaked out if we try to give you maybe a different angle at what was truly happening, who is this character of Jonah, and what was he really, really like. So a couple of things before we jump in this morning. When reading Jonah, I think it's really easy to get hung up on the veracity of the story or or, or the truth of the story. Did something like that actually really happen? Is Jonah a real person? Did God really cause a horrible storm to come upon the boat? Did he really get swallowed whole by a fish? Did all of Nineveh really repent? Now, certainly some will read and understand the story in the literal sense, that all the elements actually happened in real time to real people. Others will think the story is to be read as a satire of sorts, a a genre that seeks to take truthful elements, real people, real places, real nations, and create a fictional story around them to provide the community with an overarching principle or narrative about the truths of God, about the truth of humanity. Now, there are smart men and women that stand on both sides of the argument. Some say it's a literal story. They'll spend their entire lives trying to prove that those things actually happened. Others will point to the story as the satirical writing penned, likely during the exile, to once again illustrate the picture of the relationship between Israel and God. Now, I say all this to say the problem with this argument is that this is where people often get stuck when they read Jonah. It's an endless argument between one person who's fighting for the defense of the truth of Scripture while the other appeals to the ridiculousness of the miracle fish story as proof that Scripture should be read with themes and genres in mind. And I would contend while that argument is happening, both become conveniently distracted from the very convicting, real, and transforming questions about God and the nature of our hearts that the story forces us to wrestle with. So here's what I say this morning as we kind of embark on this short series. Let us not get stuck on this issue. Let us instead look at the story as a place for useful instruction, for teaching. Let us instead focus 
on seeing what it tells us about God and ourselves. Because this is, in fact, exactly what I believe the book does. It provides us with fundamental truths about the reality of things. It's a place where we can find ourselves in the person of Jonah, but even before we look at the person of Jonah, which Russ will do in the following two weeks, I believe we first need to understand what the story tells us about God. And that's my intention this morning is to look at this idea. So we're going to study just chapter one, just look at chapter one, which is kind of the meat. Uh, Most of the story actually happens in that first chapter. We're going to look at that and try to understand who is God. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, be with us this morning. Be with us as we open your scripture. Be with us as we desire to wrestle with your truths. God, allow us to be in a place of self-reflection. Look at this story. Get stuck on the things that I don't think are maybe as important, but let us actually try to take the meat, the marrow out of what you're hoping we would learn from Jonah, from this story. So be with us in this endeavor, Lord, open our, ours, our, our eyes and our hearts to see you. And Spirit, convict us when and where we need to be convicted. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you want, you can, uh, you can open to that first chapter. And I'm going to give uh, kind of a, an overview, a context of what is going on and, and what all of these things mean. So the story begins with God speaking to Jonah, asking him to go to the people of Nineveh with a message, a specific message. Now, Nineveh, as the video said, was just a distant city, but actually Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at this moment, or at this uh, time. The Assyrian Empire, uh, if you're trying to figure out, well, where was that exactly? The ruins of Nineveh are kind of near like Mosul, Iraq, okay? Nineveh, or the Assyrian Empire, was brutal. They were fearsome. They were unrelenting. In fact, if you guys have ever seen this image, uh, nope, not that one, the next one. These, uh, these winged bulls, you guys have probably seen those around. That was uh, a, an image that tried to capture the idea of what the Assyrian Empire was. All right, So this was kind of their symbol of, uh, of uh, fearsomeness, of their unrelenting charge to become a powerful, powerful empire. The Assyrians were the greatest threat from the north and at this time had actually already invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. There were... No self-respecting Israelites at this time that would ever associate, associate with Assyrians. They were feared and hated by all of the Israelites. So in our modern context, if you were trying to figure out, well, what would this be like for us? It would be similar to one of us receiving a word to go to ISIS with a message of repentance from God. Maybe think about it that way. It would be kind of similar in the way that we, uh, that we understand our context. So Jonah is obviously opposed to the mission, and he does a very unprofit-like thing by going to Joppa and buys a ticket to Tarshish. Tarshish is in modern-day Spain, all right? So 
At this point, it was essentially the end of the known world. Nobody had sailed really beyond there, so people just kind of figured that was as far as the world goes, and that's where Jonah decided he should go. God called Jonah to travel 500 miles east to Nineveh, and instead he seeks to go 2,000 miles west to the end of the world. While out to sea, a great storm arises. The shipmen are at a loss of what to do. They've been praying to their gods, and in their franticness begin throwing their cargo overboard to try to figure out how can we uh, get some stability on our ship. And meanwhile, Jonah is asleep underneath the deck. And according to rabbinic tradition, there are 70 Gentiles aboard the ship at this point, each representing one of the 70 known Gentile nations, which is kind of interesting. What I find fascinating about this little small section of the story is you have all of these Gentiles on top of the ship praying to their gods, and yet Jonah is asleep. The only one who truly knows God is not praying at this moment. So Jonah finally wakes up, and he comes clean about who he is, and he figures the next best option for me is to throw myself overboard. So he says, I'm the one that's bringing this destruction upon the boat. Cast me overboard. He feels like he's kind of saying, the end of my life is the next option for me. I do not want to face God. Throw me in the ocean, and we'll be done with it. And although the mariners are slow to accept this reality, they finally do throw Jonah over, and they hope for the best. And immediately at that moment, the storm subsides, and the mariners begin fearing the Lord. They offer sacrifices, it says, and it says they make vows to the Lord. So in the midst of this tragedy, this, this storm, and Jonah's thrown overboard, these 70 Gentiles, as tradition says, come to know God. And once in the water, Jonah is swallowed whole by a great fish. And that's kind of the end of chapter 1. So as much as the first chapter is about Jonah's attempt to flee God, I believe it's also about the abounding love and mercy of the Lord. The book of Psalms plays a really significant role in the book of Jonah, and we'll see this in the following weeks. Uh, but what I believe chapter 1 is, is a perfect illustration of Psalm 103.8, which says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's an often quoted scripture, but these descriptors of God are incredibly and powerfully and brilliantly illustrated in the first chapter of Jonah. You see, God's extending mercy is given to each of the key players in chapter 1, but it's maybe most easily seen with the Gentile men on the, sh on the ship. Seventy men all representing pagan nations at that time, and yet God releases them from the storm. The Lord's fair and just mercy recognizes that they were not complicit in harboring the disobedient renegade. They were not culpable for Jonah's actions. In the same way, the storms that come into our lives, though they are often brought upon us by others' actions, we can count on God's mercy. We can count on God's willingness to protect us in the same way that he protected the men on the boat. In another way, we see God's unrelenting grace it's recognizable also in Jonah. Jonah, as the prophet of the Lord, essentially flips God the bird and starts to run. 
In a patriarchal culture where respect and honor are the most important values, there is not much more that would be egregious than Jonah's actions at this point. And yet, God's grace, his slowness to anger, follows Jonah throughout the story. This is the same picture we see of God when we read the prodigal son parable. You see, God follows Jonah. He's with him when he runs. He's with him when he's on the boat. He's with him when he thinks his only option left is to throw himself into the sea. And as terrible as it would have been to be inside the fish for three days, it's God's grace that keeps him from drowning. God's grace is not only unrelenting, it's a grace that continues to pursue. It's a grace that never releases its grip. So although Jonah can run from the message that he was asked to deliver, he cannot outrun God's grace. And lastly, and where I really want to spend the meat of this morning, is God's abounding love. You see, the aspect I love most about the story of Jonah is God's abounding love. It's his love for all people that drives God to want Jonah to bring the message to Nineveh. In fact, I've wondered if it's the reality that God's love for all people pushes so hard against the boundaries of what Jonah believes God's love is like that that's why Jonah runs. That it's just too hard for Jonah to understand how could God love the Assyrians? How could God love these people in Nineveh who have attacked us? How can that even be true? And so instead of dealing with that, Jonah just says, it's easier for me to run. I can't handle bringing a message of redemption, a message of love to these people who I hate so much. How many people here are list people? Raise your hand. List people. It's fine. You can be okay with that. List people are okay people. <laughs> list people, uh, oftentimes they have special journals, like, uh, like a, just a, a notebook that they carry around that they write lists in, or, or you might be a three-by-card list person, so that's what you use. You could be a sticky note person that has little lists on sticky notes, and then they're all over the place. My wife and I have a, uh, a structure of lists in our world where we use old envelopes. So you rip open like the, not the front of it or the top of it, but the side of it. And then you have like this perfect little envelope that you can write a list on. Mm -hmm. That's what we use. Lists help to keep us organized. They provide a little bit of structure in our life, right? I have recently found out that I am becoming a list person. I used to not have to be a list person, but recently in the last, uh, I don't know, couple of years, maybe with my old age, I've had to start writing things down. Because if I don't actually write them down, it, they may not actually get accomplished. In fact, the other day I was writing a list in the morning of uh, like projects that kind of need to get done in, in a certain order. And, uh, and one, or I'm sorry, I was writing a list, and on my list was write a list of projects that needs to get done in a certain order. <laughs> so I had a list about writing a list, which is very, it's kind of like an inception situation at that point. <laughs> lists within lists. 
But whether we admit it or not, I truly believe we all have a list somewhere in our brains, a list somewhere in our hearts. And it's probably not written down. I would actually uh, guarantee it's not written down. But it's the list we refer to when we try to organize ourselves amongst other people. You see, Jonah had a list, a list of people that he was confident God could not love. The Assyrians were on the top of that list. Nineveh was on Jonah's list, and he was horrified to find out that they were not on God's list. I have battled in my life the ease of organizing people on my list. I've battled times where I have wanted to make a list that organizes me amongst others to try to figure out who does God really love the most. Let me throw out a couple of examples, things that I've actually thought before. Obviously, God has abounding love for the new community community. But there is no way he could equally love those in the church down the road that believes something different than we do, right? There is no doubt that God loves the abused far, far more than the abuser, right? Certainly his love was abounding and his heart was broken for the victims and families affected by 9-11. But there is absolutely no way he could have those same feelings for those who flew the planes, right? I believe our lists have unfortunately become quite long. Here are some people that might be on our lists. Liberals, pedophiles, rich CEOs, bigots, the neighbor that never mows their lawn, fundamentalists and gays and your demanding boss and the husband that cheats on his wife and Muslims and drug dealers. And it goes on and on and on and on. We have created arbitrary lists trying to create a hierarchy of who God loves. We have organized and ranked. And now I contend most of us, if we were truly honest, have a list in the same way that Jonah did. But I ask this question, and I ask it seriously, is this even our place to do? Is this something that's right to do, to have a list? Assyria was the sworn enemy of God's chosen people, the greatest threat to them as a nation, They were relentless and poised to destroy Israel. They were at the top of Jonah's unlovable list, and yet God's heart was for them. Bring them a message of repentance, Jonah, for my love extends to all people. That's a powerful moment in Scripture. What we learn in the story of Jonah, what we see in the person of Jesus, what we read in the New Testament is that God's love extends further than we can ever imagine. Mike Iaconelli refers to it as an irresponsible love. It doesn't make sense to us. 
It doesn't make sense to us because we are organized and structured and we have our lists. And this type of love pushes our boundaries. Can anyone tell me what John 3.16 says? Sad. That's super sad, guys, that nobody knows that. <laughs> John 3.16. Russ, you're a pastor. <laughs> I'll read it. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? Every single one of you was mouthing that. We all know it. This verse is the one that we have our kids memorize as soon as they can start memorizing stuff. It's the one that we have all memorized even though we didn't want to admit it. I'd say it's arguably the most famous verse in the Bible. And yet if we truly have lists, if we're honest and we can say, oh man, I have a list, then we think and live in a way that's inconsistent with what this verse tells us about God. For God so loved the world... Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, God loves human beings. God loves the world, not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God. What we shrink back from with pain and hostility, namely real human beings, the real world. This is for God the ground of unfathomable love. You see, church, the, the cross was not just for Christians. It's the display of unfathomable love for all people. It's a love that propels the gospel forward, and I believe it's the same love that we need to always allow govern our lives. God's love extended to the Assyrians just as much as it extends to those who are on our list. This is the God that we see in Jonah. And I believe it's the God we must understand if we are to find ourselves in the story of Jonah in the following chapters.